welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Have you ever been in prison? Know someone who's been in prison or visited there? In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Buzzy Martin. He taught guitar at San Quentin Prison and is the author of Don't Shoot, I'm the Guitar Man. It's about to be a major motion picture, and it tells the story of his experiences with the people, the inmates, the guards, and others who he encountered while he was at San Quentin teaching guitar. We began our interview, which was recorded the end of October 2010, when I asked him how his emotions did change over that period of time. Absolutely changed. You know, when I went in, I was I was obviously naive to what was going on into a state prison. I'd never been involved in in any of that whatsoever. I've been working with at-risk kids in juvenile hall, but never to a state prison. So going in, I was very apprehensive, nervous, scared, a little on my toes, very aware of what's going on. And and by the end of it, I absolutely transformed into a whole other world that I realized what freedom was. I had no idea that what freedom was until I had seen men that had lost it, and then I could smell those smells and feel the feels of what freedom was really all about. So that changed me a lot. I take nothing for granted now where before it was a little bit you know, easier for me in life to just kind of just not think about it too much. But now, after the whole experience, I, I t- take every moment of my life and treat it like a gift. Well, tell us more about that, because I think you're speaking perhaps to people who have never been to prison or who have never experienced the loss of, of freedom? Sure. Um, that's a great question, by the way, Barry. Um, you know, one of the things for me, at being a musician all my life and not being aware of what at-risk youth are or, or latchkey kids or even group home kids, I wasn't aware too much of about abuse, even though I, you know, I, I'd never been abused. I, I, I'd heard about it, but I wasn't too aware of it. And when you go into an environment where 100% of the people there have been abused, whether it be physically, sexually, or mentally, or all the above, and most of them come from abused, dysfunctional families, that is like a potpourri for a really bad mix of, you know, emotions and feelings. And <clears throat> I had no idea what, what it was all about. But, you know, the other side and the flip side of this is they, they still are people, and that's what I got out of that. But it was an environment that... We just kind of just are quiet about nobody ever talks about juvenile halls, county jails, or prisons whatsoever. So for me, it was a deal to where it was a whole, like going to the moon, it was a whole other environment. What uh, drew you to go to San Quentin and teach guitar? Well, initially I'd been working with at-risk youth uh, in Sonoma County here uh, for, you know, 15 years. And I was approached from one of the, the teachers out at Juvenile Hall. She has a friend that was doing the arts and corrections down in San Quentin. And she just felt that with me working with these kids that I work with that are incarcerated, that maybe I could bring the gift of music to these older gentlemen and see what I could do with them. And so I was approached, went down, met with my future boss, uh, went through the orientation and, and took took the job. I mean, it was a great opportunity, and so that's how initially I was involved. Where I was a, a teacher had asked me through her friend to come down and talk to the guys in San Quentin. Tell us what it's like to go through the visitor or the staff or teacher process when you go into the prison. Well, you know they, they treat everyone the same, whether you be a visitor or a family member 
or a, a preacher or a musician, it's all the same. You go in, they, uh, you have, you know all the rules and the rules are you can't run. You have to have a personal ID, a picture ID at all times. You can't wear blue jeans. And, um, there's no hostage negotiation. So if there's a riot that they're not going to negotiate your safety, you have to know that going through. So they treat every person the same. You have to sign in their logbook. They, they pad you down. They warn you. As they take a look at the airport, they warn you down to make sure you have no guns or contraband on you and you go in. And for me, I was, you know, I would walk through the main yard and I would have two officers on each side of me. And I was treated no differently than anyone else. Whether, like I said, whether you be a, a female or a male, whether you be, um, a musician coming in or a teacher or a chaplain. So they don't really discriminate whatsoever. It's all the same. It's just very regimented military. Um, it's, it, I can't emphasize enough to take a whole other world. How many gates do you go through before you get into the main yard? We'll take, like, say, uh, the, the main block, it would be one, two, three, four. Would be there'd be uh, four to get into the main courtyard, and each one of them has to be buzzed in, buzzed out, and then you're free to you know kind of roam around a little bit. If you go to H unit, which is on the other side of San Quentin, and that's a prison inside of a prison, then you would be escorted everywhere. So when I was in uh, H unit, I was literally escorted everywhere I went. I was never alone, and I'm happy to say that was a good thing. Uh, who are the prisoners in the H unit? Uh, in H unit, these are guys that are going to integrate back into society where they'll be back with you and I. So these are gentlemen that have done, you know, one to five years, uh, moderate violent crimes, drug, alcohol, but they've had a chance now to learn how to be inside San Quentin and live that lifestyle. And then they, they'll be released back to us. Uh, the guys on the main block are lifers. They'll never get out. They're there for the rest of their lives. The guys in the ranch, those are gentlemen that are lower level. And what they are, they're there for, <clears throat> excuse me, drunk driving, um, not paying child support, stuff like that. And uh, so there's different levels. But uh, the H unit, that's, that's a pretty bad one. These are guys that are pretty gnarly in life. And they have nothing to lose. And so they'll, they'll do whatever. They'll get back out. There's a revolving door for them. They've been in and out of prison most of their lives. But they'll be back out to society. In the three different groups where you taught music, uh, each class was between maybe three and a dozen students. If there weren't problems within the prison, they were on a weekly basis. Did you find any difference between the three groups of the prisoners, the ranch, the a main area, and the H unit? Yes. I, I found that, uh, you mean attitude-wise with the gentleman that I was working with the students? As people who got something out of the um, guitar teaching experience? A hundred percent got out of it. A hundred percent of the guys that I worked with in San Quentin State Prison absolutely got the magic of music. They all became little kids. That was like sponges. Every one of them, not one person didn't get it. Everyone did get it. There's no question. There's different levels, obviously, would bring on different kinds of problems or good things. Uh, in the H unit, you know, it was a little bit more trying to babysit these guys opposed to the guys in the main uh, units because the main units, they're there to learn and, and not screw up because they're going to be the rest of their lives. But as far as teaching them and having them get it, everyone, 100%, even the kids that I work with, same kind of deal. So in San Quentin, absolutely, every one of these guys that are incarcerated got the music program, learned how to play, 
learned how to sing, let their guard down. The machoism went away, and they became these eight-year-old kids. Do you have any opinion about how what they learned from the guitar music on the guitar lessons with you carried over into the rest of their lives in in two areas. One, the remaining time they spent in prison, and two, after they left prison, if they were able to do so. Right. Great question again. You know, I would hope that the things that I teach anybody, whether it be at-risk youth incarcerated in juvenile halls or these guys in San Quentin, what I try to teach these guys was, you know, respect, truth, honesty, um, the self-motivation, compassion, to, to have, have passion, to have dedication, to, to really love what they try to do in life, to, to, to bring out that, that vibrant feeling of just, we're only going to be here for one time, try to get what we can, and really try to smell the roses. So through music, I do believe that hopefully I've planted some kind of seed in their heart and their soul to blossom someday into a, a feeling where these guys actually would get the change would be really good. And, you know, that's why I always say education, not incarceration, because I just feel that these guys and girls really deserve to have love in their heart. And through music, I do believe it. You know, music does heal. It really has a communication factor to all over the world. So, yes, I do believe it was a, it was a working thing. It still does. It would take it through the life. When you say they're only going to be here one time, uh, you mean here on Earth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, all of us. We're only here at one time. Well, you know, we never know. We may come back as a gopher, but, you know, and, and how we are right now, there's only going to be one berry. There's only going to be one buzzy. But I think, we, you know, it's our responsibility to ourselves to try to do the best that we can for us and then obviously for our family and our, our spouses and you know, so on and so forth. But the first thing is to ourselves to do the best that we can. And whether it be to follow the golden rule or the four agreements or just whatever it may be, I think that we all have to just, you know, give a little bit of energy to try to change the world a little bit and ourselves along the way. I'm interested in um, the process that occurs in the music class where um, the rough, uh, hardcore prisoners turn to little boys when you taught them guitar at San Quentin. But before we get there, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Buzzy Martin, author of Don't Shoot, I'm the Guitar Man. He's the guitar man who went into San Quentin State Prison in Northern California over almost a a three-and-a-half-year period in the late 90s and early 2000. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Buzzy, how did that happen, that they changed from um, the hardcore people they were to soft children? Well, you know, in my personal opinion, I just feel like through music, whether it be just humming or snapping your finger or tapping on something, it, it brings out the innocence and the childlike feelings that we all have growing up. I mean, we, I think all of us have these feelings of something where we've heard something along the way, whether it just be Mary Had a Little Lamb or the Beatles or whatever it may be, and we cling on to those good things. And so when music's played, or you hear music, or you feel music, I think that's where the, the innocence comes out. And it's been proven over and over and over again, probably for hundreds of years, that music soothes the soul. And I think that's what these guys felt, no matter if you're incarcerated. Even the worst people, 
when you play music for them or animals, they, it just soothes them. And that's why we use music so much in everything. And and so it was a no-brainer how these guys would soothe their souls. But that's that's my connection to it. I just think that's where they got... It just really tames their wild waters by listening to whatever it may be. The same as the opposite. And if you play heavy rap music or heavy punk music, it makes people really aggressive. But if you have people teaching them how to play or teaching them how to sing or teach them how to act or whatever it may be or dance, then you bring out this other comfort zone. And that's where the self-respect really kicks in. Well, Buzzy, in your book, Don't Shoot, I'm the Guitar Man, you present what I see as a commentary on how California, uh, as an example of all of the states, treat the criminal inmates. Do you think that the treatment that you saw, the housing, uh, the uh, incarceration, the food, is a reasonable or effective way to deal with people who have violated the criminal laws? Yeah, you know, Barry, you're getting some great questions. No, you know, going into that, I I didn't go in, it's so odd because I didn't go into this to you know, write a book or do a movie or anything. I just wanted to go in and try to make a change with these kids that I've been working with, as young as eight that want to go to prison. And I was appalled. I mean, I couldn't, I mean, it was bad enough going to juvenile hall, and that was my first taste of incarceration. But when I went to San Quentin, I, I was totally appalled. And now that I've been doing this for a while and really getting involved with the institutions and, and what goes on inside of them, I, you know, I want to I wanna puke. I can't believe it. So I, I'm mortified of what we really have and how we really treat animals much better than what we do people and and what we forget is there are people and what we really forget is most of these men and women the reason they're there is because they were obviously abused as kids and we never paid attention to them and that's why i feel it's really important that through now that if i can get a million people to read my book then we now know that the United States is the largest country in the world that incarcerates basically everybody for nonviolent drug alcohol crimes. And uh, it's appalling. It absolutely is appalling. I think the conditions are just despicable. I know that, that you have extensive experience working with uh, children, people under age 18, in a Juvenile Hall. Um, are you able to distinguish on on an effective basis in terms of treatment the way children are housed in juvenile hall and adults are housed at San Quentin, as you saw? It's it? the same thing. It's exactly, you know, what we have nowadays is we basically have kiddie prisons. You know, I refer to them as baby inmates. You know, there's no difference. The only real difference is there are no guns in juvenile halls. That's it. People, you know, they have to understand that we treat these kids just like we do inmates. No different. We have, and I, I know that every city in the state of California has a juvenile hall. So I, I personally didn't see any difference whatsoever. The food, the, the way they're treated, the way the, you know, the staff treats the kids. I just feel that, it, it, you know, for the most part, it's, uh, it's pretty sterile and very, um, yeah, the incarceration is alive and well, and everybody feels institutionalized, and that's the that's what we should get away from. I was a juvenile justice commissioner for two years, and I just felt there should be another way of treating these kids while we have them. We should be able to retrain them and reprogram them a little bit. 
That's pretty interesting considering that California law uh, states that children are to be incarcerated for purposes of rehabilitation as opposed to uh, paying penitence is what is supposed to happen in a penitentiary. Right. I mean, I can't be the spokesman for all juvenile halls, but it just seems to me that as far as rehabilitation goes, there's not a whole lot of it, really. In your opinion, why is there not more information to the public um, about conditions inside prisons? Great question, Barry. Uh, You know, it's... uh... It seems to me that with prisons and juvenile halls, and even for that matter, county jails, it's this this well-kept secret that nobody ever wants to talk about. It's like the dirty little, you know, kid that just nobody ever addresses. So I think to answer your question, nobody knows about it because nobody wants to know about it. And, And we seem to keep this really quiet. Yet in our society, the object is to put people who commit crimes into prison. Or is money to be made there? So is it the money factor that's driving it? Because in California, the Prison Officers Union is one of the largest contributors to gubernatorial campaigns. Uh, you know, I think, you know, to be real honest and not to be a politician, I, I think it is 100% is definitely money. Money drives all this. You know, if you build them, they'll, they'll show up, and if they don't show up, you'll throw them in. And I just do feel it has become really, really political and money-motivated. In your visits with prison officers at San Quentin, I remember in your book you say that many of them were counting the days until they could retire. So they have, they're they a group with political clout, it's money-driven, and they want out as well. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I questioned many times who was more institutionalized. Was it the officers or the inmates? And you what's know, your answer? Uh, well, I think it's kind of half and half, really. I, I find, you know, the officers were just as much institutionalized in, in the fact that, you know, you become you become one. I mean, you start breathing the air and feeling the vibe and, and walking the walk. You can't not pick that up. And at a certain point, you're just doing it for the money. The, on the other end of the, of the bars, I guess, these guys are in there because they felt that they couldn't succeed or didn't try in society, so they took it either the easy way or, or screwed up, and that's what got them there. So, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit of both, and it, has, it takes definitely a huge mentality for somebody to go in and be an officer anyhow and behind the walls of a prison. Did you find officers that actually made a uh, rehabilitative effort with the inmates that was successful? You know, I, I didn't have a whole lot of contact one-on-one too much with the officers, but I, I just found most of the officers were uh, talked demeaning to the, the inmates, and including, you know, talking demeaning to me. So, no, I, I could feel the power structure more than I did, you know, rehabilitation. It was more just incarcerating these guys and having that power hanging over them. The way the officers talked, was that an attempt to exert their control or um, mask their fear? Probably a little bit of both. Great question, Barry. I think a little bit of both because, again, when you're going into an environment that you just are really unsure of, so you're out of your box, out of your comfort zone. So with something like that, you know, I yeah, I just think it was uh, their way of just dealing with being insecure, maybe a little nervous and maybe scared, and power. You know, power is a, a huge thing, as anybody knows. If you exert a little power or you get that job and you're over someone, you can either be really a good boss or you can be a terrible leader. 
I read in Don't Shoot, I'm the Guitar Man in, in your book that there's many references to where the guards refer to the inmates as girls. Um, what's your reaction to that? Well, you know, it's interesting. And in the book, it also refers to only one time the guards being guards. The rest of the time, I refer to them as officers because, as I was told very uh, sternly, that uh, officers work in prison and guards work in Walmart. So, yeah, you know, the taunting uh, is alive and well, and the role-playing is alive and well. So I have to always wonder, you know, who's worse here and who's institutionalized, the inmates or the officers? Because there is a lot of mind game playing going on between the officers and the inmates, because the inmates can't really do anything. And they're, I mean, they're in prison. They're not going anywhere. And there is a a lot of uh, mental chess that's been played, and you can see that go on. Even with me, when I was inside there, a few of the officers would kind of get in my face a little bit and, you know, have me kind of do that dance, which was a little intimidating for me, and I was just trying to teach music. So in your opinion, what kind of people are employed as officers? Well, that's a good question. Um, I don't even know if I I can answer that. I could try. It just seems to me that it's almost uh, military, so I I would assume that, you know, ROTC, um, maybe former cops, uh, definitely military. That uh, seems to be that way and stuff. Um, yeah, the, yeah. The, I can't talk for everyone and stuff, but that's what was my impression. Yet these same people, it seems like when you left each evening, they would uh, almost always tell you, "Be safe driving home." Right. Well, you know that's because it's almost. It's kind of like. When I leave, then they can let their guard down by saying, and they're off their job in, in that little kind of demented way. But when you're working there, I guess you have to have your defenses up and, and do that job. But, yeah, they seem to just let their guard down and say, goodbye, buddy, I'll see you later, have a great time, and, and that was it. So it was a mental game for them. And I know that there's a high a number of alcoholism, and I'm sure a, a lot of fighting with families that goes on with the officers and stuff because the strain's really intense. I wouldn't want their job either. You know, that's got to be a, a really hard job. So, you know, when you look at both sides of it, it's it's just, it's like water and oil. It's just never going to mix. Were you able to um, arrange for a visit with uh, some of the children who you see at the juvenile halls to San Quentin so that they uh, perhaps would change their mind that that might not be uh, where they would like to go? Well, an interesting question. I, uh, I, when I was on the commission, I suggested it a few times, and, and here where I live at, they don't really use the policy of scared straight or the squire program. They think it's kind of politically incorrect, and in some ways, you know, I have to question if it really works. I just feel that by the time most of these kids get to juvenile hall, they're pretty hardened, and they, and they have in their minds what they really think they should and want to do. They don't really know the real answer. So my feeling, again, is if you get these kids a little bit younger, and make them understand what the what the the path they're about ready to walk down is that you really want to do that. That would be the time to get them. So, you know, I don't know if scaring kids is the right thing. I think it goes back to the knowledge. I think if we really educate these kids into what's really happening and educate the girls to make them understand that if your boyfriend or husband goes to prison, the likelihood of them getting stabbed or beaten up or killed or molested or getting hepatitis C is all pretty darn good. So. You know, who wants to do that? So I think education is huge. 
After three years and five months, uh, something abruptly changed, and uh, you went home that night and never came back. Can you tell us? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a policy in prison that you know you got to kind of you know you keep your mouth shut. There's a code of honor to where you can't really talk about people's families or where they live or anything. And <clears throat> unfortunately, I just had this brand new class in the main unit. There was 13 guys. I had an assistant. It was really going really good. And one of the the inmates had gotten into the class and wasn't supposed to be there. And within five minutes, everyone in the room knew where I lived, my wife's name, you know, what kind of car I drove, what town I lived in. And that was it. The breach of safety was done. So I had to take a few weeks off. And uh, due to my boss saying it would probably be better if we did this, so they sorted it out. And he was beat up three times from the other inmates because they knew that the program had stopped. And so they could no longer guarantee my safety, and I was done. Sad to say, I mean, I really loved the program, and I missed everything. And so that's what sort of my journey of writing this book, and and here I am now, uh, almost 10 years later. Do you think that if another guitar teacher were to come in and pick up where you left off, that person would be safe? That's a good question. Um, I would hope so. You know, you you can't ever guarantee anything in a prison uh, setting. That's the problem. There's no guarantees. Even when I was there for three and a half years, every moment that I was there, there was no guarantees. I could never shut my eyes. So I, I would have to say I would hope so, but there, there is really no guarantees. One of the inmates gave you a ring. Uh, do you still have it? I still have it. Yeah, I do. I shouldn't have taken it. I did take it. I still have it. <clears throat> I have it put away. I uh, Yeah. I still have it. Well, Buzzy Martin, author of Don't Shoot, I'm the Guitar Man. I thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I have a couple of questions. What would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? My goal is to have a million people reading my book so I can visit every juvenile hall in the country at no cost to anybody and visit with these kids and tell them my incredible story and donate 20 books to each juvenile hall in the country. That's, that's ultimately what I really want to do. That's my next quest. And uh, can you tell us about a eureka moment or an epiphany in your life where you realize something that you continue to live by? Yeah, you know, many years ago, my dad, he was a blue-collar guy who worked at General Motors. He said, you just got to be true to your heart. And even though he had an eighth-grade education, it was, it was really true. Just, you know, I always had to be true to my heart and follow, follow my heart. And that's what I've always been true to. No matter what, I just, I just keep on uh, following my heart. You have to dream. If you don't dream, it'll never come true. And I've, and I've dreamed really hard, and I've worked really hard, and dreams are coming true, but you've got to dream. And finally, is there a uh, book that you could recommend to our listeners? The Four Agreements is a wonderful book. Easy to read, very inexpensive, and it would change your life. Buzzy Martin is the author of Don't Shoot, I'm the Guitar Man. The true story of the musician who set out to change lives, note by note. The book that Buzzy Martin recommends is The Four Agreements, a guide to personal freedom, a Toltec wisdom book by Miguel Ruiz. Radio Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, 
subscribe to our podcast service and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.